struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Welcome everyone to our latest episode of 100 Days and Beyond, where we speak to, I would say, the fraternity that gets the, ro- the sleeves rolled up, the work done behind the scenes, keeps the engines ticking over while you sleep, <laughs> if that's the way to say it, but really the brains behind much of what happens in the real business world. And I, I believe today we've got an amazing guest. We've got Harry Cohen, who's CEO, Driving Innovation and Growth at Power & Water. He's a director, board member, NED, coach and mentor, done mergers and acquisitions, which we're going to want to hear about that. And uh, obviously integrations, transformations. I think that's a topic that's very big on people's minds. Well, yeah, I think to a certain extent, some people might see it as a bit cliche, but I think transformation is still very, very real. Leadership, strategy, and then rugby union referee. And and that's going to be the nice part. I think right now we're having a rugby festival and I'm quite enjoying going through that journey, but we'll talk about that much later. Welcome, Harry. Thank you for joining me on the show today. And yeah, I just welcome. Thank you for joining us. Pleasure, Dudley. Yeah, pleased to be here. So tell us a little bit about your journey, because I mean, when I had a chat to you briefly before the po- podcast, you had some amazing stories to share and you had got some incredible background. I love the excitement that you bring to what you do and also the passion. And I think that's the hallmark of this industry, the passion, the love for it, and the sheer, I think, determination just to be better, to improve, to sharpen your skills, to broaden your skills. I can carry on probably for the whole hour if I could, but Harry, I want to hear from you. So tell us, how did you get into this and tell us a bit about your journey? Okay. So in fact, the very first two acquisitions I had was when I was in an actual executive role. I was first of all with a startup life and pensions company, number four on the head counts. It was very early days there and went in the CTO. We then acquired, and it was a very avant-garde company, very p- pushing boundaries, very different product range. We then acquired, it was an American parent funded exercise. We acquired quite a traditional company down in Bristol who had a very, very different client uh, portfolio base from the ones that we were building ourselves. So while well, I was in London and I was going down to Bristol on a regular basis and realizing that you know, we were talking about cultural differences that are a bit like Venus and Mars, <laughs> we had a very, very mature policy base used to, you know, club work, very manually intensive back office function. We were pushing boundaries in terms of lots of automation, lots of building policy databases. So I kind of thrown out the deep end and. It, was very, it had to be very intuitive, really, in, in terms of walking into that situation and then thinking, and by the way, I was only in my, you know, mid to late thirties at this stage. So it was like, holy moly. <laughs> so we worked our way through that one. What was the experiences that come out of that? There may be a point to, to relay some of those as kind of what I call war stories as we through the session. Then I was running another business in the computer services game where we acquired a business up in Liverpool, very small business. Once again, 
very traditional, very different from what we were doing. So I was learning my skills in the trenches, so to speak. And I have no doubt I committed several clangers along. <laughs> learn, learn by doing and jumping over. <laughs> bruised elbows and bruised knees. <laughs> well, anyway, so that, that game got me going here. But I went through various stages of my career. I want to bore the bore you with or the audience. I then did move into the role of being a professional post-acquisition integration consultant and program manager. And then I did another seven of those. So a, a fair, yes, quite. <laughs> wow. A serial <laughs> offender. <laughs> and coming out of that, you know, I had actually been chief exec of a boutique program management consultancy. So I was really embracing methodologies. Mm. Uh, and there's a point, which we'll, we'll come to in a minute. I think there's a point that doing these exercises and every one of the latter seven, I realize you have to have a baseline of a methodology. However, it's not the only thing. It's not the only tool in the box. And what I learned uh, from experience, and actually it gave me great in, uh, enjoyment in doing it. And I do actually enjoy doing these really sort of almost impossible tasks. Uh, <laughs> it goes back to, you know, my early introduction to the client and kind of like my job mm. in doing that role is to realize the business benefits that underpinned the case for making the acquisition in the first place. You know, so, <laughs> so you don't do no charity, so the acquirer has a business case and they say, we should acquire this business because it will do this and this to the combined operation. And I don't think one should ever forget that. There is a business case that as the program director, program manager, whichever title you want to apply to it, you have to always keep that in your sights. There is a business case and your job is to deliver those business benefits. There's a big difference between business benefits that make up an acquisition case and when the, and I say, my, my job starts when the ink is spread on the paper. <laughs> so we bought you. Now you're kind of like, sometimes I'll come across people and go, hmm, now why did we do that? So that's one of my early, now what I don't do ever, I'm interested, but I don't ever say, why did you buy that? That's actually none of my business. My job is to very quickly assess whether or not the business benefits that were articulated are actually deliverable. And you do that by a very intensive interrogation of the, the sponsor and the stakeholders of the whole program. I did one in the water industry and I was appointed to the job. It was actually a joint venture. It was a very, it was a fully incorporated joint venture. So it was very typical of the typical uh, acquisition. And when I joined the assignment, they said to me, oh, by the way, we have a program board next week and we'd like you to tell us how you can deliver this project by the end of April. Oh, nice. Okay. And that was January. Some ra random date just plucked out the sky and it's like, yeah. so, hey, it so I went away <laughs> and I came back to the program board the next week and said, having taken a very deep breath, can't be done for the following reasons. I gave them the reasons. So they said, yeah, we kind of thought that. So when can you do a bike? <laughs> I said the end of July, which we did. So I think you have to be bold enough to back up your, your analysis. And I gave them three or four very key reasons why that time scale was just totally impossible. And to their credit as a border, yeah, fine. 
So that's about saying, yes, we want to do it, but I'm not going to promise you the impossible because I'm only going to disappoint you then. So it's kind of like you, I could lie to you today and disappoint you in four months or tell you the truth today <laughs> and we can talk about it. And there's the temptation sometimes to go, yeah, yeah, fine, I can do it. But what I discovered there, and I went into different industries. So I was in an acquisition, which was in the private psychiatric care field. I went into an acquisition integration project in the construction industry. Very interesting one, probably worth talking about. Hugely different though, from construction to that. Tell me about it. Then I went into broadcasting with the division of the BBC. Then I went to the one I just referred to, which was in the water industry. I went into advertising monitoring and then financial services. The interesting thing of that story is that I look back on those and I would say that the major issues that had to be resolved are about 80% generic. And then there's a bit around the outside, which is particular to that industry sector. And quite often it's about the lingua franca or the culture or the regulatory environment that might be imposed on it or not imposed on it. So I very quickly realized and I started to, if you like, refine the approach to saying you go to the core and then you start looking where the differences are. We discussed once before, actually, early on in my life, particularly with those two that I did as an executive, these programs have three main characteristics hmm. and I've always come across them and they are complex, they're political and they are emotional. And those circumstances will rear their heads, not just once, always throughout the program. And you can't tell what they're going to happen. Just be ready for them and learn to recognize, if you like, the symptoms that are starting to build up in there. So, so you have to then start talking about how do you deal with the people? So, cause it's all about people at the end of the day, you know, it's about people. If people know how to do the job, they're, yeah. they're proud of the job they've done, they're proud of the company that they worked in. So they're, they're proud of the fact that we are a company who are now making an acquisition. But you're acquiring people who are very proud of the company they've worked for and they think they've done a good job as well. So you have to hook into and reinforce the fact that that characteristic is recognized. You're going to build upon it, not just say, well, you know, we bought you, so therefore we must be better than you. We may well be, but not always, by the way. <laughs> and I've learned from, from, again, from experience that recognizing the intellectual capital that resides in the business that's being acquired is essential because they are almost the jewels in the crown. That's if you harness that correctly and realign it, then you're well on your way to that acquisition, realizing its business benefits and the business case. Uh, so very early on, you have to understand what was the driver behind this acquisition, Mr. Acquirer? What were you looking for? Now, this is where I then draw back to that methodology, you know. Obviously in these programs are complex. So you typically use something like MS project and you have the 500 activity plan and that's all very good. And you can do that. You know, you can do that in splendid isolation. If you want, you can sit at your desk and do that all day. Mm -hmm. And then you could just update the activities every week, send it to the steering committee and say, I'm doing my job. It doesn't quite work like that for me. So what I do then in order to try and identify where you will have alignments and more importantly, misalignments in terms of the business case, the desire and the objectives and the, sometimes the culture as well. And this is where I get a wee bit formal. <laughs> Part of my methodology 
is I have a structured interview. Otherwise, it's the sponsor of the program. Generally speaking, I'm appointed by the acquirer. Um, there's a definition of the sponsor. The sponsor is the individual who is responsible to the board for delivering the benefits of the program. And around them, they have stakeholders. Hmm. And stakeholders are people who have a vested interest in the success of the, pro the project. Yeah. So I ask them all the same 15 questions. It's not a tight list. It's not, you know, I do it conversationally, but I just make sure that I don't let any of the questions I want to ask, I don't want to miss them. And I literally will take verbatim notes and then feed that back to the person I've interviewed and say, this is what you said to me. Have a look at it and tell me whether that reflects what you think you said to me. And it gives them an opportunity because well, when you're in that conversation, would he get kind of diverted? So the beauty of that is I can look at that, all of those, it can be your one sponsor and, or maybe sometimes a joke sponsor, which is very difficult you will maybe have up to 10 stakeholders mm. and I've pulled together what I call the overall program definition. Now that sounds very heavy and very formal, but generally speaking, you can get through it in the first seven days and then I'll present that to them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you work hard at it, um, mm. the, 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 and for me, the, I think the important thing isn't this, right, this is question two though, you, you do start, <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, you haven't had a one yet, you can't get to three until you've done two. No, you, you, I do it conversationally. But I make sure I don't miss any of the points to, to the people. And then I can give them back a program definition, which says, this is a summary of what I heard. And by the way, some of the questions are about what's your vision of the success of this program? How do you see it? How would you measure it? What does success mean to you? You know, if, if a, yeah, there has to be not necessarily empirical, but it has to be measurable in some way or other. So. It's not like everybody's smiling, but it could be that we haven't experienced a high absence rate or a high fault rate. So there are kind of KPI type stuff that you have to do. And then you will build in that a series of criteria, which when we tick them all off through the program board, we go, we've done the job. Okay. It's a very straightforward process. That, that's what thorough. I mean, 15 decent questions is thorough. You're probably going to be busy for a while. I mean, a 15 questions sounds like quite a detailed meeting. Yeah, it, it takes about an hour and a half, really, if you do it correctly. And then you have the second review, so that can, it, it's, yeah, please God, we can do it now, actually. And those that you do face-to-face, -face, and I go to people. So I used to travel down the country. If it was a fairly diverse organization, I'd be traveling to, in one case, Inverness, Exeter, London, Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> for a period of time. Every week I go to sleep and from Watford Junction up to the nest. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I summarize all of that, go back to the program board and go, yeah. now what's really, what becomes very obvious here is, are there any glaring misalignments about what people expect to come out of this? Because if you don't address these, it's back to that little semi sort of humorous comment I made. I could lie to you today and disappoint you in six months, or we can face the truth today and we can do something about it. And I think unless you set your stall out as the program leader or whatever the title may be, I'll be called all sorts of things, especially as a referee. But so that's a bit of methodology and underpinning that you do the classic stuff, identifying risks, so you know, classic program management stuff. 
for the right people, it's just second nature. It's the kind of unconscious knowledge you just do intuitively. You know, like when you're a kid and you're watching your parents drive, you've got unconscious incompetence because it looks dead easy. <laughs> then you start doing driving lessons, you become aware of it, you go, oh, I've got conscious incompetence. <laughs> And then conscious competence and then unconscious competence. So I think as you go through the exercises, then mm. you build up that sense of, you pick up the vibes. That's a launch pad for me, Dudley. And I That's a fascinating launch pad. That's a wealth of information. And it's not something that, you call it in, uh, intuitive. There should be credit given where it's due, because I think when you have a practitioner of your stature, it seems intuitive to you, but not everybody feels that same or has that same skill set, talent, or whatever it is. And it, it could be completely overwhelming to them. So, in, intuition, it could also just be a really good set, good attribute, good talent, good getting that sense of the environment you're in, which is a complex environment. There are so many moving parts. And having the ability to see not only the big picture, but be able to drill down into the small component parts. I want to come back and you said the word interrogate and you said the word interrogate as it relates to the business case. And when we look at the business case, whoever puts, who puts together the business case, whether it's the BizDev team or the M&A team, whoever the sponsor is in terms of the whole, it depends on, on, on the environment. What was interesting, I just want to fully understand that. So part of the first part of your process appears to be that you will first go and have an interrogate, and maybe I'll some you expand on that a little bit, what you mean by that, the business case or the people that have put the business case together so that you can fully understand that. Would that be the correct? Yeah. I used the word interrogate and quite advisedly. So I, I basically said to him, give, give me a summary of your business case. I will go and read this. I want to understand what the drivers were behind this acquisition. Okay. I want to understand what you've promised your board or your private equity company or whoever's funding this. <laughs> and that gives me a sense of scale mm. and it gives me a sense of the objective behind it. So, so it's the written words. So when I say interrogate, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, I'm really looking at the business case because at this stage. You are, generally speaking, I'm signed up to an NDA, so I'm committed to do all sorts of confidentiality. And if I can't see that, then I'm having to do the job blind. Uh, now that helps me then go into the interview stage that I was talking about. So I wouldn't be interrogating in a sort of a, you know, break. Well, we're not talking about sort of police or military style. No, no, no. We're talking about business style integration. In other words, right. you're testing the business case. You're making sure that you've asked the right questions. You've interrogated the information in the sense that you're just testing it. You're making sure yes. that it, it makes sense in terms of what the initial premise or the initial intent was. That's right. That's what I, I heard out of the word. That, that's exactly it. And also you're looking at the realism of timelines and the realism of time scales, the, the whole scaling factor, the, the little wee story I told you there, you know, we'd like this done by the end of April, can't be done for the following reasons. Uh, so <laughs> for the following reasons. <laughs> what are you about to get? <laughs> it's not like, no, it can't be done. And then that's the end of it. It's like, this will come up, but yeah, this is actually the reasons why. <laughs> well, and if you can't articulate that, you, know, you just kind of like saying, I'll, I'll try and get as long as I can. <laughs> you <know>? Plus minus. Because <laughs> so, so, when they came to me, they said, well, when do you think it can be done by? 
And I said, the end of July. And we did. I think you have to be professional mm. as a practitioner in that regard. You don't just say, I don't think this can be done. You go, you're going back with good reasons. You can sign up to say, well, if I can make it a bit quicker, I will. But if you want my opinion, uh, my professional opinion for these reasons, then it's going to be around a bit then. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge it a little bit. I'm going to, you're hundred percent correct, but I'm going to challenge it in the sense that how do you, okay. So how do you do this? We've got a scenario where you've got the acquirer who has a business case. They have an intent, they have a vision, they have a, a picture in their minds in terms of what they want. They've got dates, they've got timelines, they've got a list of, let's call it the value creation, the synergy capture, all those fancy things, what they want to achieve. That's the acquirer. Now, when you go into the target and the company that was acquired, before you got to the scene, I almost said scene of the crime, but it's not really, but before you got to the scene and there was, a, there's been a whole lot of negotiation that's been happening. So you've got the acquirer who has an intent behind that's the target I'm going after. Therefore, these are the synergies and these are the things I'd like to achieve out of it. I'm doing my due diligence. I'm going through the process of meeting all the necessary people. However, in a lot of deal negotiations, they tend to be limited to the targets, upper echelon, the leaders or just a handful of individuals of the target company. And I would say 99, I mean, I'm just putting a figure out there, but let's say 99% of the organization is totally unaware Correct. that they're being acquired or that there's negotiations taking place. Then you have the situation where you arrive as the person with this vision and mandate that you now have understood and need to come and implement. And the people who are the target or have been the target, they have their own set of outcomes they would like to achieve. So some of them might be exiting. Some of them might stay behind as management because that's part of the negotiation. Some of them might be too young to retire, et cetera. Some of them might be integral in terms of, I think you said, intellectual capital, critical to the conversation yes. after the, 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 the deal's done. So I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw this out there. So you've got now this, this grand picture coming in. You now have a new set of individuals that have their own pictures in their minds. Now you've got to do matching <laughs> or trying to align those individuals goals because they're going to be somewhat different. It's the key staff and then the leaders that are staying behind because not everyone's going to stay behind, but how do you just tell me about that nuance? Because you must have with that many integrations. That for me is, let's call it a gray area. Let's try and solve it for the audience. Okay. So you're right. So they, m most of these acquisitions are blind to the acquired because it could be market sensitive. It could be price sensitive. It could be price affecting, particularly with listed companies and some of them are listed companies as well. So you are actually having to work in a very, very tightly controlled environment where only a few people know that there's what's going on. And funnily enough, as it goes through, then the people who are in the know on the list of inclusions, if you like, to the deal. I mean, I've seen that build up to like 40, 50 people, certainly bigger organizations, the smaller ones, much smaller than that, probably half a dozen on each side. And so you're looking at the business case, the due diligence, and you learn to figure out whether due diligence was deep or it wasn't. And sometimes due diligence on, on an acquired targets has got to be done remotely. 
So there's a lot of desk work. <laughs> you, you don't have a chance to go by, you know, interviewing people and say, what do you think of it? How do you find it being acquired? <laughs> you learn to recognize how they looked at the, perhaps the difference between the technology environments, which you can do, you know, have they looked at, you know, some of the, the basic business stats. You look at the numbers of people, are they equal? Are they, one of the early acquisitions that I did, the acquired was many times larger than the acquirer. That's significant. Yeah. So that you have to recognize is in those early days of engagement with the ground board or the, the executives behind the deal, you have to learn to answer questions and follow your instincts. If you don't think the answer's genuine or sincere, or it can't actually be backed up. Oh, you have a look at this, you know, you have a look. So you have to be able to see that and get a sense. For instance, you, you have, and, and you know, I spent a fair bit of my time in IT as well. I'm not an expert, but difficult to know me. <laughs> I like to ask the daft laddie question. <laughs> Perhaps it's just me. It's not necessarily something you can program. So you have to learn very quickly how to do it and to have the instinct to ask that next question. Oh, maybe you could talk me through that again. So that's where you build this picture of, is it quite clear are the key parameters like IT environments, uh, terms and conditions, pension schemes, are they different? You know, and these are all pretty well things that yield to due diligence. So they should be there if they're not there. Then that builds time into it. You go, well, look, you have to spend time on this, you know, because negotiating, you know, uh, a final salary scheme versus a defined benefit scheme, went to go all time. <laughs> it was going to take more than a week. Trust me, Mr. Klein. Uh, and those are the parameters yeah. that will translate into time on the program. Hmm. So that's how you get these blocks of time that build up to saying, you know what, this is not going to happen in three months. I want to expand that to additional stakeholders. So you've been given the integration to perform and now the whole process of involving customers, suppliers, other stakeholders, other support environments, and so on. And this needs to be handled relatively delicately to a great extent, because just like internally, you've got intellectual capital, you've got key staff members that you've got to let's call it cotton wool to a certain extent. You've got to keep them there because they are what bring often the key value. But then losing customers quickly after an acquisition is probably not a great thing. So that's a potential risk area. Tell us about that. How, how do you overcome some of those, let's call it those very high risk things, key staff, customers, supplier arrangements that now all of a sudden potentially might be, uh, might have to be reviewed because of a different organization. Tell us a bit about that. Well, you know, there is actually, yeah, that's a kind of almost like a boring side of it all, because generally speaking, when you bring someone together to that, or you're moving into their supplier domain, you know, all of a sudden you're a different entity. So you have to go through a whole different rigmarole of, you know, credit control or, you know, all, all the boring stuff, because no, no, it used to be building company Y. It's now building company X, so you don't want to be a supplier. You don't want to be a customer. So you can start, and you, you can get caught out really badly with it because actually that can take so much time. Now, the bit about customers is something that, that is absolutely another cornerstone, and that is all about communication and clarity as to why the deal was done and what is the benefit to them as a customer. And it comes down to that. Other. So once you're out in the open, 
then you can have that degree of communication. But you have to be very clear in articulating what the benefits are to them as a customer, that all of a sudden they're not going to worry about losing access to Harry or Jane, because they've always dealt with them, that actually they might still be there, they might not, but there's a bigger organization behind them now. There's a bit, there's a, so you have to be very clear about that communication to the market or your market as to why this is better for everyone. And that's a very important message to get rid of. What is the message to the, when we announce this, what's the benefit to the people who have been the customers of the acquired? You can't guarantee they won't listen, but if you don't do that, you pretty well guarantee that you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or some of them. Some of them. Well, some of them, yeah. None of these days, it's probably a lot more difficult because not all, let's say 15, 20 years ago, we had different, very simple, let's call it communication channels. You yep. could write a whole lot of letters, for instance, people call it snail mail, they call it whatever you like, good old royal mail, you could put a stamp on it, write a nice letter on a letterhead, send it out, say we love you, we still got to look after you, Mr. Customer. We'll take care of you. All good. Send out formal letters and you can then potentially have phone calls and then the key customers, you could send the account managers out, et cetera, and just to smooth things over. Now we've got electronic communication. We've got people relying on quick messaging, digital platforms, sending out emails that may or may not be delivered. You've got a whole new universe. I'm just putting it out there because the challenge, and I want to see or get your opinion on it, the challenge is for me, tell us about how you deal with, let's say, when do you start preparing the communication that goes to customers? As an example, do you start doing that pre-deal? Do you start doing that as early as possible in your sort of 100-day process? When do you look at that? Okay, pre-deal for sure. Because you should be then, and I've been lucky enough to be involved in some of these pre-deal. Not always. Sometimes it's, a, it's day one. <laughs> so, so then you've got to do some fancy footwork really quickly. Uh, and therefore you've got to be able to answer the question. You've got to be able to ask the questions yourself. But pre-deal for sure. And it's got to be rehearsed and you've got, it's got to be tested. And if, in pre-deal, of course, you have access to the key people in the acquired organization, unless it's hostile, which is very difficult, very news. But most of them are not hostile. Friend. So you do have, the, you have to have that engagement with the people who are running the acquired. They know their customers, right? They will understand their customers' concerns and what their customers look for. So you have to test that internally, I would mean, for two months before the deal, which was fantastic. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah, it was, that's, yeah. It's, it's it was, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That was the best of all, by the way. <laughs> and it went beautifully, right? So you've really got to test it. And if you've done your job correctly, well, even though some of the people on the acquired company will know that they're probably not going to be there forever, hmm. uh, you will have fronted that up. You know, it's a fact of life that unless you're honest about what's going to happen after the deal, and many people I've seen actually welcome it anyway. It's a great opportunity to go do something else. So get that. And then I think the key for that is to make sure that message is goes out. But it's interesting about not just suppliers or customers, it's also to the people. And I have a little term written down here, which is about be seen, be present. So as soon as you do, walk the floor, right? 
And what where we had multiple major organizations, we deployed people the night before when the announcement was made, they walked the floor, they were present in the building. They weren't afraid to go in and be introduced as the people who just now become the, 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 the parts of that is absolutely important. Walk the floor. Don't be afraid. Walk it with almost a sense of humility in a way. It's not, you know, we bought you so we want to be better. There's a big investment. It's a bit like, you know, one of the things I say that it's a bit like launching the space shuttle. Mm. But 80% of the total energy of the flight goes, is spent in the first 25 miles to get it free of gravity. And after that, you go to up there, just it's course correction, you hand control to the astronauts and you can downsize your mission control operation in the center. So you've got to invest huge amounts of energy up front. And if you don't- That's a great you, analogy. That's a great you analogy. You will get caught out, it's fight of life. If you don't, you, you know, you, I always say the project that starts off badly will surely fall away. And then that's a fact. Yeah, that is a So invest, put your people out there. One of the things I did for a very big construction integration, the acquired was not much smaller than the acquirer. They actually thought they were better, naturally. <laughs> and they were very parochial. They were the biggest construction company at the time in Scotland. They were the natives in the construction. So the ox director of the acquirer came to me and said, what do you think we should do about, you know, getting these guys on board? So I'll tell you what we do then, John. Take them to your heartland, which happened to be in the Southwest where this company started. Take them to take the management team down there and take them around your sites and show them that you're actually just both builders. And when yes. they got one site, they just started talking about the building projects. So take them to where you are, identify yourself, show them that you're actually just building and they're builders as well. And trust you, real people. <laughs> people. And they'll talk about, how do you handle this? How do you handle this? And the thing is about finding those little tricks. And they are little tricks, actually. And you can't, there's no page three on the book of tricks. A lot of those work, you know, you have to have a book of tricks. <laughs> and then flip your way through it really quickly in your mind. So that, that was a classic again. Another one I did was, was involve moving the more mature part of the organization from Kent up to Newcastle. And what I did was I, I took the acquired company who were based in Newcastle and we went to a new location. So it wasn't, you know, this is a new place now. And I had to move people from Hamburg down to Baden-Baden. And it was about offering people the opportunity, the career opportunity, but respect to you if they didn't want to do it. Then you get into, there's all sorts of things. You know, I've been in a, a German industrial tribunal. I've been to front of the unions in France. And <laughs> I worked with a lot of councils. Yeah, that's that's proper experience there. <laughs> Just be ready for it, you know. That's what I'm saying. Just be ready for these things. They may or may not happen, but don't get caught out. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a bit like back to my refereeing. Always have two whistles because if you fall over, you get your whistle, whistle for the much better of another one, you know. <laughs> I, I, I've seen with refereeing these days, they need two, you know, they need a backup yeah, and all that because the and, one might fail. Yeah. And the thing about, you know, being seen and being present and walking the floor is you need to, back to that messaging we talked about, the people representing you need to know what the core message is. And they mustn't be afraid to face a bit of hostility, a bit of suspicion, a bit of resentment. That's back to that emotional dimension. You know, there's some basic complexities like IT networks, like new payroll systems, like new accounts payable systems. Yeah, I call complexities. 
and you've got the political bit, which is probably the board level, how they're going to come together. And you've got the whole emotional thing, you know, the, the, there's the Fisher curve about this transition, where it starts off uh, uninformed optimism, then all of a sudden something changes, then start to get anxious and anxiety. And the, the, the bit below the line, the Germans call it the Valley of So everybody has to share the Valley of Tears, as the Germans call it. Uh, and then you climb back above the line again. And your goal at the end of that is that you've done the job in such a way that the staff of the organization have a new psychological contract with their new organization. A new, so they've got to be comfortable. This is good for me, right? I can see it. But they've gone through their you know, romance, disillusionment, enjoy type thing, you know. It's going to be great. Oh my God, it's not as good as I thought it was going to be. Oh, what's going to happen to me? Uh, and that curve, that Fisher curve, is a fascinating curve to watch. And generally speaking, the bit below the line will only yield again to positive, regular, consistent communication. Transition bulletins every two weeks or, you know, a blog every Tuesday, see what's going on. News at 10 broadcast every day, but you know, you can do, you can do podcasts with one more common now, which weren't quite so prevalent when I was doing that long history that I've talked about, but you could do that as well. You can do this message or you can say, I remember that one of the companies had a, a, a link which was called Ask Garvis. Garvis is the chief exec. Ask him anything. And he will come back to you within two days. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Can be a blessing in the couch in terms of social media and all this. Stuff. But you have a great opportunity as well if you're focused enough to understand the importance of that messaging. And get ahead of the curve. Don't wait. Always. Don't wait until it's too late. Absolutely. That's what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. And you may have to change as you learn. You may have to slightly change the nuances in your communications. I have to say, hey, look, you know, in fact, you know, one of the things that I did do, one of the, that construction project, we had a bit of a battle internally about a certain accounting practice where the acquirer was much more laissez-faire and they had automatic approval of something, anything below 3,000 pounds, I think it was. They acquired were very traditional Scottish, always in cash in the bank, you know, stuff in the bottom drawer. And they did three-way matching and there was a, oh no, it cost too much money to do that. We did an analysis <laughs> and figured out that actually it cost about one more person about 25,000 pounds a year, but the other company was costing them 200,000 pounds a year because they were unapproved invoices being paid. So you have to be, let's see about, you know, you have to be a bit of a referee of that one. <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I, wanna, I, I want to come to that because I'm, <laughs> bio, I'm just going to read it briefly. Being a rugby referee has significantly influenced my leadership style as this role requires me to be involved, engaged, and communicate clearly without instructing the players on how to play their game. As a referee coach, I mentor junior referees, uh, two of whom have gone through onto referee at English rugby premiership level. But I want to come back to that involved, engaged, communicate clearly without instructing the players. I want to just give us the correlation between that and this complex world and what you call political and emotional too. <laughs> There's no less complex environment than the game of rugby. <laughs> I did actually, it must have been a board set. I did analyze there are 400 individual situations prescribed in law in rugby. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them are totally irrelevant. <laughs> the lines on the pitch and the air pressure of the ball, things like that. But there's some key words which are absolutely, they constitute the majority of the game. 
And it's about communicating to the players that, you know, what they can do as opposed to what they can't do. You know, and I, I go out and coach rugby clubs and go, this is what you can do. So you know, this is within the law. You're allowed to do that. But so anyway, so what you do then is, and we have a wonderful, it's obviously like that little story I told you. We have a wonderful uh, technique where we call the advantage law, which is you see something's not quite right, but you wait to see if any good will come of it before you immediately blow your whistle. So when you see the situation that I talked about, these two different approaches to authorities and invoices, let's talk it through, right? Let it run for a bit uh, to see if any good will come of it. Uh, and good did come of it because the acquirer adopted their technique. They said, you're quite right, you know. Now, that's a big plus to a company who's acquired. They're respected. They seem to be prudent about And the, the acquirer isn't just doing what, care what you think. So I think those... And they're, they're small victories, but they've got a big impact. And you have to be able to go back to my thing about respecting the intellectual capital of the acquired. There's a lot of good people in there. And make sure you know what the parameters that you will be judged by in the construction industry. I know for a fact, one of the biggest things that was bothering people is come the first payroll when we're integrated. Will my money be in the bank on the day it should be? Right? That was how most of the people were going to measure the success of that integration. Not the stock market. Nothing. <laughs> All my tax details would take the trust correctly. Am I going to be charged more tax than So, because those things are at the very front of people's hearts and minds when you're one of the 3,000, not one of the 10, who are part of the deal in the first place. And that's a scaling thing, you know? So you recognize the bread and butter side of life as well. Yeah, you got to do that. Yeah, I mean, there was one other thing that I needed just to, before we, we get to the end of the podcast, but there's one other thing that's been at top of mind for me to ask you, and that is I developed a leadership program leading at the edge, inspired by Ernest Shackleton's expedition to the South Pole. This program instills active engagement in management to support culture change and build high-performing teams leading to successful navigation of very challenging circumstances, not more so than the current COVID-19 pandemic. So we're talking about leading at the edge. Tell us about you know, this whole South Pole connection. <laughs> right. Where does that come about? It, it fascinated me. I was sent the book by one of my known executive directors myself, and I was struggling at running my a business I was in chapter. And I read this book, and it's, it's written by a guy called Dennis N.T. Perkins, and analyzes Shackleton, Ellis Shackleton's behavior during the whole expedition. So he set off foolishly, he admits himself, to sail to the South Pole at a time when the weather was about to close in. And he was somewhat reckless. So it was almost like, let's just go and buy this. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Let's take it. <laughs> okay. So then he became entombed and right in the ice, the ship shone. And the, so he then, this chap, Dennis N.T. In fact, I connect with him regularly. We chat a lot about leadership. He took, he analyzed Shackleton and he identified, it's slightly contrived to be honest, but he identified 10 leadership characteristics that he believes by example, and he takes examples from, from the expedition, Shackleton displayed these characteristics, you know, one team, one message, symbolism, 
risk management, vision and reality. Yeah. And there's a chapter on each of them. <laughs> it's like the book here. Yeah. So there you go. That's the book. Ah, lovely. Okay. So lovely. every acquisition exercise I've done, I take both management teams, the senior management teams and other teams that they want me to do it. And I bring them together and we mm. go through the leading at the edge program. They all get the book and they, we go through a chapter at a time. We have an opening session and then we take, so next week we're going to talk about symbolism. What do you mean by symbolism? In the old days. The chief exec always had the parking space near the door in case it was raining, you know, <laughs> or they had a management room, dining room. <laughs> so there was a symbolic statement about that, that I'm better than you. So we are always symbols in one way or another. Keep it a negative symbol or a positive symbol. So it, it's very much, there's no, it's not a chalk and talk. We get in a room, we bring the management teams together and we talk about, you know, are you a risk taker? Oh yeah. yeah. How would you rate yourself? Nine. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken there? It, and you get to tell you it, and then we talk about your know, team values and so, all I do is a bit of thought leadership, by the way, I'll go, look, you know, when I was running the job at Beaufort, this you know, is a classic case. This is something I got into. And I just talk about a real life example. Something that happened to me, it might not have gone well, it might have gone <laughs> really well, but it's an example and, and they're all factual. So I write them in the, the, the margins of the book, little example, and I say to them, I want you to write in the book. And you'd be surprised that many people are horrified of the thought of writing in the book. <laughs> I can't do that. Anyway, <laughs> all I do is I'll get, look, I'll give you an example. Then we, I say to them, so have you got something that, that resonates with this? Now, what's really important is if somebody says, well, what I would do is I go, no, no, stop there. I don't want you to tell me what you would have done. I, I want you to tell me exactly what happened. Describe the situation to me. I don't want a theoretical answer here. Now, so what you get is you get two management teams are coming together and all of a sudden, it's a bit like my building ex, you know, think, let's go to your heartland. They realize they've all got the same problems, really. And, and it, whilst it's a leadership uh, lesson, it's also a bonding exercise for the teams. Hmm. So all of a sudden they realize that we're not talking about aliens here. We're talking about people. They still struggle the way they do to do their job. It's the most rewarding program I've ever run in my life. It's, it's fantastic. And all you do is lead them along the way. It's about sharing life's experiences. Mm. And all of a sudden you go, God, I've had a situation like that as well. You know, how did you deal with it? And all of a sudden the barriers are breaking down, you know, and they become part of this, of the same cadre of people who are still trying to do the job. I wax lyrical about it. I, I love delivering it. It's a real privilege to deliver it as well. But I mean, sometimes I just kick it off and then you know, sit down on the sideboard and just watch them get up with it. <laughs> and then pull it together, you know? And at the end of it, there's a leadership assessment exercise in the book where I ask them to fill it in, to establish and give them their own view for how, how do they stack up as a leader? You know what? Every time I've done it, I ask them to do it again. And at the end of it, they play themselves down compared to what they said at the first place. Because they realize just how tough leadership is. And I will say to them, look, you know, Shackleton was a life-threatening situation. Mm. This isn't life-threatening, but it could be lifestyle-threatening. We don't get it right. 
Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite profound, but yes. You're right. I would recommend the book to anyone. It, it was probably one of the most informative, challenging, and motivation books I've ever read in my life. Many people say when they write books that they almost find themselves, they find their voice, they find the journey of writing the book. Some actually, the what is one of the most rewarding things you can ever do in your life is, in regardless if someone reads it or not or ever uses it, but just the journey that you take in, yep. in articulating your heart, your mind, your soul yep. to a certain extent. Yeah. into a number of pages. I Thanks. think it's an amazing achievement and your passion and your enthusiasm for what you do, how you do it. That's why I said at the beginning of the episode, I thought you definitely got to show the passion and you did. <laughs> well, one of my unrequited ambitions is to write a book. It would be Harry the referee. It would be kind of, you know, Harry the wanderer through life. <laughs> That's definitely needs to be something that everybody does I is, so. is very rare. Yeah. You'd make an incredible author. I think just putting together a lot of your stories and so on, let's sort of start balancing it out now and start saying, you know, Harry, you're a busy guy. You've actually, you've done so much in your life. How did you maintain? I mean, these days people are talking a lot more about the stresses and strains of work and long hours and all that type of thing. I remember in my early days, I mean, the amount of commuting, I mean, you know what it's like. You're in either traveling by, by a motor car, you flying somewhere, you live in airports on a boat. If you're <laughs> the pressures and challenges of those days. I mean, I, I remember my early days taking the A to Z, you know, trying to find the customer in the first place or trying to find the meeting venue these days, it's so much easier with technology, although it's so much more complex, if you like. The stresses and strains, I don't think have changed. I think it's just maybe, and this is maybe I just want to ask you, you've had a, have a, had a really good career. What do you see as this, as the changes in sort of the way we work now versus, you know, in your, when you first started? Right. Okay. You're becoming a bit more statistically driven. You know, people want to have the, you know, you have 15 of 54 KPIs that you update every day. Yeah. It's not very well, but you know, there's probably only about four vital signs you need to measure to figure out whether it's working or not. <laughs> <laughs> but I know I remember doing an assignment. It wasn't an integration where one of the divisional heads said, you very proud of you. I have 150 KPIs that we measure. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just picking them up is already a big job. Right. Yeah, so I think you, you've got to keep distilling it back to the basics. And I'll go back to my rugby analogy, you know, I talked about the 400 situations of law. Sometimes when I'm speaking to players, I go, listen, it's a complex game, but there are three things to bear in mind. Stay on your feet, stay behind the ball, and pass it backwards. And you'll stay the trouble with <laughs> So it's about one of the three or the five critical elements that you need to sort of build into your articulation of your program and become, they become your mantra and be consistent all the way through. And I think doing that. And so people are driven by statistics time after time after time. And I think you have to step back and go, right, how, is, how are we actually measuring success? You know, and one thing that you, know, you have to be careful that if you do a program in a clinical way, yes, you may well move all the, uh, PCs onto the same network or they're into the same payroll system or all that stuff. But if you've lost that other, then you, you know, I'm probably sort of focused on 
by the people side. If you don't get that bit right, it's a bit like, and this sounds very macabre, really. You could step back and go, well, you know, the operation was a success, but the patient died. (laughs) 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 You didn't take the beating heart of the organization with you. All you did was concentrate on the basics and get the payroll at the end of the session. Uh, And if you don't, if you disconnect those two, Hmm. you're really a big risk about whether this will be, somebody says, what what makes a successful project? Not that you completed it on time, but actually six months later, what you set out to achieve is actually being achieved. Hmm. So I think, you know, you have to be, you have to look, so as the program that you look beyond the end of your assignment. I always try and draw all the people I need for work streams from within the two businesses. And then I'm they're not dependent on me, you know? And then, so the, my vision of success is somebody says, well, where's Harry? I haven't seen him for six months. He just disappeared, you know? Hey, there you go. I, I can <laughs> <quite a bit. laughs> it's, it's a very philosophical approach, Dudley. Right? But it, it's, it's, it's based on a platform of a methodology and an approach, which is quite consistent. And I think if you don't do that, you can't be flying by the seat of your pants all the time. Mm. You've really got to know where the hot spots are and the sensitivities are. You've earned your stripes in terms of once you've learned and obviously implemented the core things, you can be philosophical about it and you can actually say, you know, these are the core principles of life, if you like, or these are the core principles of things, because you understand the, what it takes to get to that point. And I just love it. Again, I mean, I, I probably could speak. (laughs) <laughs> you for hours, Harry. You're fascinating. I'd love for you to come back on the show um, again sometime. Love to. I, I want to just probably just finish off by saying, how do people get hold of you if they want to speak to you? If they want to get hold of you in terms of whatever it is that they I, do. I, I, I'm on LinkedIn, Harry Hyphen Cohen. I'm on LinkedIn, and you know I will talk to anybody. You know if somebody's even thinking of somebody, if they want to have a cup of coffee with me, have a glass of a chat. Um, Love it. There's some fairly basic uh, methodology types uh, stuff, but most of it is about life experiences, the war stories, and yes, you have disappointments, yes, you have setbacks, and just recognizing how you take people with you. And I do that when I'm refereeing rugby matches. You have to take the players with you, but be prepared. I, I reckon you have to go from obscurity to total authority. You go, let the game run, and they go, stop, that's enough. Short, sharp statements. When I'm, tell, so when I'm telling somebody off, you know, most players just stand there saying, well, as soon as you stop talking, I'll get most of my game. So I always say, Dudley, two penalties, last five minutes. The next conversation we have will be a very short one. Do you understand me? Because <laughs> <laughs> then you've got to answer me. That's <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> Harry, thank you very much. Well, it's uh, been a pleasure. And again, you've allowed me to experience some of those really fascinating experiences as well. That's great. Because you sometimes lose them in the midst of time. I've really them. And thank you very much for the opportunity. Uh, your passion is unbelievable. Uh, that's why I, I thought you'd be brilliant and you were absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much. I'm going to say goodbye to Harry. Thank you, Harry. Goodbye to the audience. Thank you very much for joining us again on another episode of 100 Days and Beyond. Where I believe it's the it's the platform, the only platform for those unsung heroes of the integration of post-acquisition integrations, post-merger integrations of the MA world, where all the hard work gets done 
and where the real people and systems and processes and things. And I think you said it very well, Harry, complexity, the politics and the emotional side of things. Those three areas, absolutely well said. Thank you very much to our audience. Join us on our next episode and all the best. Have a super weekend. Have a good day. Yep. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Hi, everybody. This is Dudley again. And if you need help with a future or existing post-merger integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free, no-obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are, and we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's mergerintegration.co.uk or come to our website, skillfulpursuit.com.